Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. ACSH Science Dispatch, episode 34. And I am joined for the very first time uh, by a, a good friend and a, and a good scholar on so many of these topics that we discuss on the show. Dr. Henry Miller is with me. Henry is a fellow at ACSH, and he is uh, very, very familiar with, uh, with these issues we're going to discuss today. And we have two stories specifically. Henry's the author of both of them. The first one deals with um, this surprising and a little bit alarming drug shortage that's happening in the U.S. right now. So we're going to try to get to the bottom of what's happening with that and how we can fix it. And then we're going to talk about President Biden's recent proposal to boost the bioeconomy. And uh, Henry is a little bit skeptical of this proposal. So we're going to get into both of those. Henry, first of all, how are you today? What's going on? Good, good. Um, I'm in uh, the wine country in California, and it's sunny and beautiful after weeks and weeks of rain and floods and landslides. So I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah, I'm not far away from you, just up in the state capital. And uh, I saw flooding for the first time in my life a couple weeks back. Pretty horrifying. Um, but everyone's safe and sound now, as you said. It's uh, beautiful outside. So let's jump in to these stories. Tell us a little bit more about this drug shortage. Uh, I have a young son and uh, there's been shortages of baby Tylenol and baby pain relievers, just really basic stuff that you need when your kids are sick. And, and from what I'm reading here, this extends to some very, very valuable drugs when people get sick. So tell us what's going on. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've been writing about drug shortages for a while, but uh, I resurrected and uh, updated an article on it when I read uh, this tweet by a pediatrician in South Carolina uh, recently, she said, today I tried to prescribe amoxicillin for an ear infection. The pharmacy didn't have it. I tried to prescribe Tamiflu for flu. The pharmacy didn't have it. I tried to prescribe Adderall for ADHD. The pharmacy didn't have it. If that doesn't bother you, it should. Well, it bothered me. and. Uh, I went back and, and looked at uh, the, the current drug shortages, which FDA uh, tracks. And uh, as of about a week ago, there were 123 drugs in shortage. And these are very common drugs, similar to, to the ones that uh, uh, Dr. Greenhouse mentioned. Uh, in fact, uh, two of them, uh, Adderall and amoxicillin are on the FDA shortage list nationally. Um, but uh, it includes uh, such things as um, the kinds of drugs that paramedics use, uh, even uh, dextrose, sugar solutions used for IV administration in hospitals uh, and in emergency rooms, improbably. And irony of ironies, uh, on the list is fentanyl. Can you imagine in the U.S. we have a shortage of fentanyl <laughs> for IV administration, which is, uh, as some of you, your our listeners may know, is commonly used. It's an important drug medically. So uh, this this is not uh, new. Uh, it's not rare. Uh, several years ago, the University of Chicago researchers looked at uh, uh, drug shortages in uh, 719 uh, hospitals and found that uh, all of them had had shortages of at least one drug in the previous year and two-thirds had experienced at least 50 shortages um, 
in that time. So uh, this is a major problem. And uh, the remedy that uh, I suggested for it to get more drugs available in the U.S. is reciprocity of drug approvals between the FDA and certain of its counterparts. And those counterparts would be uh, it would be regulatory agencies uh, in places like Canada, the EU, Scandinavia, and Australia that have uh, regulatory standards similar to the FDA's. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. I think people may have heard something about this in recent years, that a lot of the the medically important drugs we use commonly are not actually manufactured in the United States. Some of them are, but but many of them come from different countries, in particular China, or at least the the key ingredients come from China. Um, so I'm wondering, do you do you think the ultimate solution is to bring drug manufacturing back to the U.S.? And if so, how do you do that? Um, or is it just um, this reciprocity you're talking about? So what what do you think ultimately? What's the answer? Well, you're you're right that the ultimate solution would be to, to produce these drugs, especially generics, uh, in the U.S. But there's no good way to do that without either uh, imposing requirements uh, top down or um, or some sort of subsidy. So I'm not getting into that issue at all. Uh, what I'm getting into is um, the the drug the kinds of drugs. Uh, that are commonly used that are produced maybe by small or mid-sized companies in Europe, Scandinavia, the other countries I mentioned, um, who would be willing to market their drugs in the U.S. uh, if they didn't have to go through FDA um, regulation as well as uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, So, for for example, uh, it's, it's inconceivable to me there are not that there are not small and medium-sized drug companies that can produce things like uh, uh, T5 dextrose in water on, and there's a shortage of um, of dextrose in a different uh, concentrations D5w d20w d50w there have to be uh, companies abroad that could uh, ramp up, their production a little bit and provide it to the U.S., especially when we're in shortage. They could charge a little bit more uh, because uh, it's in demand. Um, there, there are all sorts of drugs like that um, that are very common, very easy to produce, very low tech, um, that could take the pressure off uh, uh, U.S. supplies and also uh, in, in the process put downward pressure on prices as more products came to the marketplace. I see. So I think if I'm hearing you correctly, there's reputable companies all over the world. They get approval for the drugs that they produce in their home countries, say France or, you know, wherever, some, some place in the European Union. And then they can't sell them in the United States because the FDA has to also approve those. And that's just not worth the hassle. It costs many millions of dollars. It takes a long time. And so they say, forget it. We're just not going to bother. Is that basically the problem here? That's basically the situation. Yes, Cameron. Okay. Okay. So in, in other words, as you know, maybe someone like an economist like Milton Friedman would say, the answer is just get out of the way, please, and let the experts do what the experts do, um, and there's a clear market demand for these products. So if you have 
capable regulators in these first world countries approving these drugs, then they can be sold in the United States. That's a reasonable conclusion to reach. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. And and there are other uh, potential benefits as well, other situations in which this reciprocity of uh, approvals would be useful. Uh, for example, there are some egregious examples of FDA dragging its feet on approvals for one reason or another. One was the uh, meningococcal vaccine uh, uh, to prevent meningococcal infection. Uh, It was approved in um, much of the world, many of the world's industrial countries in 2013, uh, but it was only 2015 that FDA approved it. And so with reciprocity, um, it would have been marketed here automatically uh, in 2013 when other countries uh, had approved it. Um, another example is uh, it would uh, obviate the ability of, uh, of some at FDA, some regulators, to impose arbitrary uh, and extra, actually extra-legal uh, restrictions on drug approval. So there was one division director who summarily decided that um, in addition to the statutory requirements of safety and efficacy for new drugs to be approved, um, in his division, uh, the manufacturer would have to show superiority in addition to simply safety and efficacy, superiority to other drugs for the same indication on the market. Uh, which is which is not only illegal, but is uh, is dangerous, uh, because well, a little known fact is that um, the uh, many of the indications for for drugs uh, are different from the original indication, uh, and so um, we see that uh, th- there are drugs that originally were approved for um, type two diabetes that are, are useful, it's found only later for uh, conditions like uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, and uh, Viagra, the, um, uh, the uh, aphrodisiac drug, was originally approved for uh, lowering blood pressure. And so um, the, the bottom line here is that if you impose a restriction like requiring superiority over everything else on the market, many drugs won't be approved in the first place at all and will never reap the benefits of subsequent indications down the road. So final final question here, and I'm going to put on my, my Bob Califf hat here. I'm the FDA chief, and, and my response, Dr. Miller, is that um, you know my agency has to make sure that the drugs that are coming into the U.S. are safe. And we can't do that if we don't actually review them and make sure that we're protecting the American people and that we're advancing public health. How do you respond to that? Well, the uh, couple of examples I gave is that you're not uh, protecting public health if you prevent Americans from getting uh, safe drugs as judged by uh, experts elsewhere in the world um, in in a timely fashion. And I should point out that uh, one of the reasons that uh, FDA drags its feet and that FDA would find reciprocity anathema is that um, they, the bureaucrats themselves, make these decisions 
whereas in some countries, such as by the Europeans, uh, European Medicines Agency, uh, it's done by academic experts on contract uh, who, who don't have the same incentives uh, for uh, dragging their feet. So uh, I think I'd say uh, you really ought to find a new job, Commissioner, and let a reformer come in and replace you. Amen. <laughs> so, but, but that's interesting. Is Effectively, I think what you're saying is people in other countries get paid to approve drugs and the people at FDA essentially get paid to not get in trouble for approving bad, bad drugs. I think that's basically what it comes down to. Is that, is that fair? That's a great way to describe it, Cameron. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to leave that there. I think that's interesting. Henry, of course, has long, long, long experience approving drugs at the FDA in the Office of Biotechnology. So this isn't just some guy with a blog. This is a, you know, a seasoned expert we're talking to. Um, and it's a, it's a solution that's been on the table for many, many years. I've heard many people of Henry's caliber say, look, we just have too many, too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. So hopefully this, uh, this proposal gets some traction in the coming years, Henry, but let's talk about, uh, President Biden's bioeconomy proposal. Um, I, I think we've talked about this briefly on the show before, but just give us a rundown. What did the president say? What's the idea behind this this push that he's making? Yeah. Now, first, I guess we ought to define terms. Um, bioeconomy is a, a made-up term that uh, refers to the commercialization of products made with biotechnology, which is another made-up word um, that... Uh, implies the use of genetic engineering processes and, and products uh, for commercial products. And uh, there was an executive order promulgated by the Biden administration uh, to boost the, the bioeconomy, supposedly. And um, the, the, uh, but the, the, the details of it uh, are surprising in a way uh, if you really wanted to stimulate commercialization of these products, but at the same time, not surprising when you know uh, the, the bureaucratic mindset. So um, the, the what we've learned from uh, half a century of, uh, of biotechnology products, uh, and I was involved at, at the very beginning, as you alluded to, I was uh, at FDA, I was the biotechnology czar, quote-unquote, and was the reviewer of the first biopharmaceutical human insulin, Humulin, um, which my team approved in record time. But um, so what we've learned in uh, those many years is that there are three things that are necessary for commercial success uh, in, in uh, well, in, in any sector, but in biotech, in particular. Uh, the first is that uh, the government needs to fund basic research um, that serves as a substrate for product development. And it's, it's the kind of research that uh, is beyond the capacity of a single, uh, a single company or probably uh, even a, a single sector of very basic molecular and cell biology. The second factor that's necessary is a favorable investment, a favorable climate for investment, uh, so that the, those basic science findings can be moved along to uh, <clears throat> to clinical trials and eventually commercial products. 
Uh, and the third thing is there needs to be a regulatory climate that's reasonable, um, not necessarily lax, uh, not uh, uh, free, but but just reasonable. Uh, and the, the um, uh, president's executive order um, would certainly fall short on the last of these, on the, the, uh, the regulatory side. What we need is regulatory reform that in fact lowers the, the uh, regulatory barriers at USDA, FDA, and especially EPA, um, and makes them more science-based. And w there's no hint of that at all in the, in the executive order. Instead, um, there's all this woke terminology, um, such as um, uh, aspirational platitudes like quote-unquote principles of equity, ethics, safety, and security that enable access to technologies, processes, and products in a manner that benefits all Americans, unquote, blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, this, is, this is not helpful. Uh, in addition, it requires all sorts of um, reports and analyses uh, by different uh, components of the federal government. And then um, reporting of those um, of those analyses to, and here's a list of the, the uh, people and agencies to whom those uh, reports should go. The director of OMB, the APNSA, the APEP, the ADP, DEEP, APDP, and the director of OSTP. Now, this sounds like something from Saturday Night Live or the Babylon Bee, even to me. And I was in the federal government at NIH and FDA for 20 years, and I don't know what these agencies are. Uh, and you can bet that once they have these reports and analyses in hand, they're going to feel compelled to do something with them. And what they're going to feel compelled to do, I guarantee you, is not regulatory reform. Yeah, it's, it's amusing. And, and again, I don't, I haven't read too much about this. I don't even think there are very many details available yet about exactly what this is going to look like. Um, but it seems, it seems counterproductive really, because what you're saying is in order to stimulate the private sector to produce more useful and valuable biotechnology products, we're going to suck a bunch of resources out of the private sector and we're going to give it to all these agencies and we're going to do all kinds of paperwork uh, and then we're, you know, like, it's just, you're going to spend more money. You're going to drag your feet. All the incentives are all backwards as we discussed in the previous story. So it's just silly. It seems like the right thing to do is get rid of some of the red tape and we can talk about specific examples. Maybe you want to talk about, I don't know, some like CRISPR edited crops, or maybe there's biologic drug. I guess we talked about that just now. Um, so give us some uh, specifics, like what exactly would you like to see in terms of reform to, in, to improve the, the bioeconomy, in quotes? Well, we need to focus on the right scope of regulation. And uh, ironically, the government got that right in two reports, uh, landmark reports, in 1986, which was called the Coordinated Framework for the Regulation of Biotechnology, which said that uh, the agencies should regulate only unreasonable new risks. Uh, but the agencies were having none of that. Uh, they saw an opportunity for uh, expansion and empire building, and they took it. Um, the 
The other um, time that the government got it right was in 1982 when um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, that's the White House Science Office, um, produced something called the scope document. And again, what they said was that regulation should not focus on the use of certain uh, techniques, but the scope should be um, uh, products or uh, products or processes that are unreasonable written with risk, that pose new and unreasonable risk, that's not already regulated. And the fact is that we have tremendous amounts of regulation for uh, products and, and activities that are seen to be uh, high risk or even moderate risk. So there's the Plant Protection Act, and of course there's the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and there, uh, EPA has the Pesticide Statute, FIFRA, and the Toxic Substances Statute, TOSCA. Um, but um, they created um, sui generis, that is specific, unique regulations just for biotech products, no matter what their risk. <clears throat> so a classic example is that when uh, scientists at, in industry and academia came up with a, um, a mutant bacterium called Pseudomonas syringae, the ice minus uh, bacterium, to prevent frost damage, uh, this is a ubiquitous organism in its wild form. Uh, the, the ice minus varies by only the deletion of a single gene. Uh, EPA decided that, well, frost is kind of a pest, and so we're going to regulate this bacterium as a pesticide. Uh, and that was the kiss of death. There was no way that uh, anybody was going to take this through to uh, pesticide registration. And so uh, we're still plagued, as I wrote in a recent article, uh, about a, a, a frost in Florida, uh, we're still plagued by frost damage to uh, to citrus and leafy vegetables and all sorts of things, primarily uh, at this time of year and in the spring when there are late frosts. Another example is FDA's regulation of genetically modified animals. We've been modifying animals for eons. That's where various breeds of horses and, and cattle uh, and, and other animals come from. Uh, but FDA uh, has specified only when the, the newest, most precise molecular techniques are used, they're going to regulate the animal as a new animal drug, and it's going to have to go through the, the drug review process. The animal actually has to go through it. Well, that has wiped out an entire sector. Um, the, um, the FDA managed to do a 20-year review of a fast-growing Atlantic salmon called the Aqua Advantage, which finally came to the market about two, two years ago after this uh, dithering for more than two decades. So that's unacceptable for uh, commercializing anything, obviously. So these are the kinds of things that need to be remedied, but, but I can guarantee you will not be under the um, direction of the uh, environmental, the, um, the, the president's executive order. It's, it's a lot of silliness, you know, especially the idea of regulating uh, 
mutations in animals like they're drugs. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And just to give people a little bit of detail, there's been s- studies done where they pointed out, and this is in um, Nature Biotechnology, like a major journal. People uh, with the relevant expertise recognize this. If you take just a an animal that's conventionally bred and, and widely consumed as food in the United States, their genome contains millions upon millions of mutations. And they're largely uncharacterized. We don't know what they do, but we eat the food anyway. We're just not that worried about it because we have, as Henry was talking about, many, many, many years of experience of consuming these animals and nothing goes wrong. But when it comes to these very precise technologies, well, if you make a very specific edit somewhere in the genome with CRISPR, whoa, 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 whoa slow, <laughs> slow down. You know, it's so it's entirely backwards. You know, it, even by their own definitions and on their own terms, these regulations don't make any sense. Well, backwards, uh, backwards is the operative word, Cameron. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And so there are excellent examples of that in the uh, plant breeding world, um, where, again, the, the use of the uh, highly precise and predictable molecular techniques fall into these unique regulatory nets, these excessive regulation nets, whereas conventional breeding of plants doesn't at all. And yet the only problems that we've seen uh, over the years are from conventionally bred plants. And the two examples that come to mind immediately are the Lenape potato, which had, uh, which had uh, growth advantages uh, for agronomic advantages for farmers, but was found to have high uh, toxic levels of plant alkaloids and had to be withdrawn from the market. And there were... Uh, some varieties of, of squash uh, introduced in Australia that sickened a bunch of people and ki- even killed a couple uh, produced with conventional genetic modification. And, uh, uh, and because there were these uh, unknown, untoward uh, side effects, if you will, of the breeding process because conventional breeding is so imprecise. Yep, makes no sense. And uh, that seems to be the conclusion of so many stories we talk about, <laughs> especially when you talk about federal regulatory agencies. There's just little, there's little logic behind it if, you're, if you're, your goal is let's get good products on the market. But um, I guess we'll see what happens, Henry. Uh, for starters, I would encourage everyone to, to read these articles. You can get them at acsh.org. You can also go to Henry's website. It's just henrymillermd.org. And you're on Twitter as well. I think it's at Henry I. Miller. Is there any other place we should send people? That's all I think for me. Uh, thank you, Cameron. Yeah, very good. Very good. Uh, well, if you want to get these stories we talk about, go to acsh.org, go up to the subscribe tab, punch in your email address three times a week. We'll send you all the stories we publish and then you can read them. And the most popular ones are the topics that we cover on the show. So hopefully you get a little more out of it. But with that, we will call it a day. Episode 34 in the can. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining me and uh, we will see you all next week.